I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government and I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening to have this discussion on the different economic models that have emerged, um, not uh, only one of them from government so far, uh, that have emerged about the consequences of Brexit, how we might compare them and, um, and really what, what we might say about which of them seems most likely. Uh, we're doing this because we've done a whole series of reports on how you do Brexit, on uh, customs, on immigration, a recent uh, excellent report by the team on uh, trade after Brexit and what the different options are, and some other smaller work on uh, the European Court of Justice and so on. And uh, we were continuing with, uh, indeed, the state of Whitehall and the cost of Brexit and other things coming coming soon. But we wanted to dig into this because, uh, partly because of the very marked lack of economic modelling or impact assessments or anything of that species from the government, uh, but also because others who've been working on it, whether academics or think tanks, uh, have been working on this. And there is now a range of, uh, of models out there um, which we can usefully discuss at this point. So that's what this is about. Delighted to have with me Charles Rees, who's the lead author of the recent RAND Corporation report after Brexit, alternate forms of Brexit and their implications for the UK, the European Union and the United States. And he was former ambassador to Greece. Is that, that right? That's right. Thanks, mm -hmm. for, thanks for joining us. And I've here uh, Professor Alan Winters, many of you will know, who heads up the very prominent UK Trade Policy Observatory, the University of Sussex, where he's Professor of Economics. And we are going to have, I'm in good, good, uh, uh, good faith, uh, Liam Halligan, who's a Telegraph columnist and author of Clean Brexit, How to Make a Success of Leaving the EU, which if he successfully manages to get here, I will uh, wave at you. Um, uh, we've not empty chaired him or anything uh, provocative. Uh, I think he's simply held up by the usual combination of transport and so on. Um, but we very much hope to be joined by him. I've asked, I've asked um, Charles and Alan to kick off with describing uh, their models and we will play them uh, to the extent we can against some of the others around, like the Treasury ones that came out before the referendum and indeed the Mayor of London's one that has uh, recently come out and other, other ways of talking about this that we might seize on and, uh, and then, then discuss among us why, um, uh, why some say, uh, why each says different things, if you like. And uh, then we'll go to questions. I, uh, we've already had advance notice. There are a lot of questions, so I will leave time for that. With that, Charles, welcome. Thank you Tell very much. Tell us um, about your model. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, our study, which is called After Brexit, um, was internally funded, and it was a joint venture, RAND Europe and RAND US. I'm in the RAND US part, and Hans Pung is a shout out to him, our president uh, of RAND Europe. We did this after the decision, after the referendum, and we take no position on Brexit itself. But we thought it would be interesting to examine given the significance of it, all of the possible economic relationships that the UK might have with the EU and the rest of the world afterwards. So the headline you've probably seen is that all of the plausible scenarios we find the British economy to be worse off. Uh, the question really is how much worse off. Uh, the so-called no deal or... Worse off, worse off than now. Worse off than now. 
And the no-deal scenario where, or the Britain trades with the world on the basis of WTO uh, rules is the worst. So uh, our, in our modeling, which for uh, policy wonks is a, is a gravity model based on the world import output, uh, output database, just for that, get that out there, we found a, a almost 5% negative growth after 10 years, um, which uh, amounts to $140 billion of lost growth for the uh, British economy. And that's about 40% of the British expected growth over that decade. <laughs> We then looked at a FTA-like scenario with the EU. So that's a scenario that is um, uh, Canada plus or minus, it's hard to tell, and we basically assumed it on the basis of Canada. And we found that that uh, was about halfway uh, the difference between that 5%. So it was 3% better than, uh, three percentage points better than the 5% reduction. So 60% or so, uh, uh, better off for Britain than uh, a, uh, a no-deal scenario, but still not uh, substantially worse than the present circumstances of full membership. We then looked at a, a UK-US FTA. So at the time uh, when uh, the President Trump was elected, people were talking about a UK-US FTA might replace uh, the value of a, an EU uh, relationship, a uh, preferential trade relationship with the EU. We found that there is really no basis for that assumption. Uh, the United States, uh, an FTA with the United States would be worse by about 40% than an FTA with the EU. And that's logical because half of Britain's exports uh, go to uh, the EU and only about 20% go to the United States. Um, we then looked at, well, what about a trilateral, like a TTIP, a new kind of a TTIP that would be a free trade of the Atlantic, the United States, the EU 27, and the UK. This is the only scenario that was a positive uh, for uh, the, the, the UK. It's a, about 7% better than the FTO, uh, seven percentage points better than the, uh, uh, the WTO baseline, or about two or three percentage points of growth better than continued membership. And that's largely it because it's a sum of the FTA with the United States, the FTA with the, the EU, and then the uh, uh, growth effects of the FTA between the two much larger economies, the United States and the EU 27. So, so what are those points? Just to be clear, it's assuming a very good free trade agreement with the EU. It within is. Within that package. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, it, well, it, it, that our our assumption was that it would be the same terms all around, all three. But the, it, conceptually, it's kind of the sum of the two plus the growth effects of the three. Um, we then took a look at the various other sort of soft Brexit options: the Norway, the uh, uh, Swiss. Uh, with no services and uh, sort of a customs union, Turkey plus, and they all uh, center around about the same, a little bit better for the, the UK than continued membership in the, in, uh, continue, a, a, they're a little bit better for the UK than a uh, free trade agreement, but not by much. Um, uh, we did a transition uh, a deal where we said, okay, suppose there was a transition period of five years of continued membership and then uh, an FTA for five years between the UK and the EU. That's a little bit better uh, for the UK than just an FTA because you got 
uh, five years of, uh, of full membership, but not as good as full membership because you have the investment effects of the uncertainty. We knew that people would say, oh, these guys, you know, what do they know? Uh, and so one of the innovations of this particular model is we have an online calculator that allows people to play with key elements of the model. And the, basically, the key elements are, are that you can play with that make a difference are the non-tariff barriers, assumptions about the non-tariff barriers that happen immediately and then over time. And the over time is an estimate of how much there be divergence between the standards and regulatory processes in the UK after Brexit and the rest of the EU. Two other elements of the, uh, the report that are probably worth mentioning very briefly. We did a chapter on game theory, uh, what, what insights we might draw from the academic field of game theory for the Brexit negotiating process. And I recommended to you to take a look at, but there are two things that seem to me to be important. One is for the EU 27, the most important objective is to prevent others, other member states from leaving. And so in that respect, their objective in the game is to make sure that the British are seen to lose. This is not a good situation for the British to be in, in as the negotiations proceed. Secondly, we took a look at the uh, idea of a strategy where the British might seek to find peripheral countries uh, of the EU that might take its side in specific issues and, and argue with uh, uh, the core, uh, Germany, France, uh, and the Commission on its behalf. And we thought that that probably would not be a successful strategy because the core always has more to offer those peripheral countries than the, uh, than the UK might. And in the end game, you'll need the core support uh, with, in order to get a, uh, a consensus in favor of whatever the uh, end result is. Uh, and then finally, impact on the US. Uh, this is something that I don't think other studies have taken a look at. And we, uh, I mentioned in the presentation of the, of the scenario, we find that economically uh, an FTA with the UK is not important to the US. The, uh, uh, it's two-tenths uh, of 1% uh, after, after 10 years is in the rounding error territory. Um, it would be sad for us, speaking as a former trade negotiator, to lose the British voice at the EU Council table, which is, tends to be pragmatic and liberal in economic terms, but it's hard to quantify that. We thought that the biggest American interest in the process was that the, uh, uh, the, the, the risks that Brexit might lead to a broader unraveling of the EU, the rest of the 27, and that would impact our political and security interests, which are very much identified with European integration and the construction of the European Union. That's the reduced Shakespeare version. Charles, thanks for taking us right through that. And um, let me just um, um, sum up for um, uh, simplicity about um, you know, what, what you're saying, really every uh, option that you looked at was worse than now, except for this one right. that you regard as quite unlikely at this point. Because of political yeah. developments on both sides of the Atlantic related to TTIP, but also the change in the U.S. administration. Great. And as you took us through, through that arc, um, you threw in the gravity modeling there. You want to say just a bit about what that is, because um, it is one of these terms we're all going to become very familiar with, about what it means in building a trade model and what kind of assumptions you're making. Right. Well, uh, the, 
the gravity model uh, is the is the basic model that is used in most trade analysis, and it it. It, it proceeds from the assumption that trade will flow where the barriers are lowest, and uh, and also it factors in geography. It it, it matters it, if you're closer. It matters if you're closer, uh, and so uh, gravity modeling is based on uh, modeling the trade barriers and then having the trade flow run again, a and that's what the equations do. But the, and then you look at the output. And uh, compared to, for example, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Lord Mayor's study that was released this morning, we, um, uh, it's a different database. We use the World Import Output, Output mm. Database, and uh, we don't attempt to model employment effects. Mm. Well, th thanks, th thanks for that. Um, the reason I push you on it is one of the reasons you get more, sometimes, more optimistic models is if they don't use uh, gravity modeling or don't take uh, proximity right. into, in, into account, something we might, we might come on to. But it, to me, it's yeah. logical. It's just yeah, like it's taxation policy. So you raise taxes on something, you're going to get less of it. So if you raise barriers to trade, mm -hmm. you'll have less of it. And then trade affects the economy. We'll, we'll come on to all those points. Alan, what do, what do you make of this? You've looked at this from a different point of view, which is living standards. Yes, I mean, we, we have done some work explicitly on living standards, which, mm. if I may, I'll come to in two right. minutes. Right, fine. I, I would just make a couple of other comments. Yeah. Uh, uh, Charles has outlined his model. Um, the really important thing in all of these models is what you put into them. The really, really critical uh, variable is how many barriers do you think you've got at the moment and how many barriers do you think you're going to have in the future? And that is an area where, for goods, we are reasonably well informed with tariffs. We're not very well informed about trading costs in general, logistics costs. For services, which is a very significant part of the British economy, we are really uh, right in the dark. So I think one of the points, and I don't mean this with any disrespect at all, models come with a very wide range of potential error. And I think that uh, what the... Um, uh, Rand study does is it gives us a nice analytical walk through, in a sense, something that is fairly typical of where other people have got, with, with one exception. So uh, Bronwyn mentioned the Treasury model uh, from um, well, uh, nearly two years ago now, and that was exactly the same sort of technique, a gravity model, um, work out how much trade will fall, and you decide that uh, falling trade is bad for falling GDP, and you calculate it from there. You can, get the gra you can specify gravity models in a number of ways, and we won't be terribly surprised to say that, wherever, in a sense, at nearly every fork in the road, uh, the Treasury of that time lent in one particular direction. They got a bigger number, uh, essentially not for any reasons of uh, corruption or mispractice, but just that you have to make a whole pile of judgments. Other people like the National Institute have re uh, replicated that number, uh, the LSE as well. It's fairly much sort of where the profession is. Uh, the one person who is quite different is Patrick Minford of the Economist for Free Trade. Bronwyn has mentioned that uh, they don't have geography in their model. Uh, they also don't have a distinction uh, between um, a drug that is made, shall we say, in Nepal and a drug that is made in the US. They're perfect substitutes. 
And um, that's really uh, why uh, Patrick is able to be very optimistic. It's all right, we can junk all this stuff from Europe, we can get it at 20% cheaper by buying it from developing countries or the other side of the world. Two things uh, further to say. One is we have now got a little bit of work on what's actually happened rather than predictions. Uh, there's been a nice little exercise uh, that's looked at the pattern of GDP over the last 18 months and suggests that the British economy is now uh, a surprisingly interesting number, more or less £350 million a week worse off uh, than it would have been had we not done Brexit. Um, we can talk about the techniques there, but that's, it's sort of based on real numbers. It's also the case that work has been done that has suggested we all know that we've had inflation, we all know that it's at living standards. Work at the LSE showed that the uh, the, the um, goods, services, that uh, prices have risen most in it over the last year are precisely those ones that are most open to trade. Therefore, really, they infer that the exchange rate change that followed within hours of the Brexit decision really was what's been driving the decline in living standards over the, uh, uh, the last year. What we did in the UK TPO was back to prediction, we asked what happens if we uh, leave uh, the European Union and we end up imposing tariffs on uh, the goods that we import from uh, Europe. Essentially to ask what happens to the consumers and how does that affect consumers. Uh, by and large, uh, again, lots of assumptions, let's not be proud about it, they're, um, they're always there. We found that um, on average the prices of goods that we consume, overall European and other goods, would go up by 2.83%. Uh, that's about 40% of the uh, typical family in Britain's consumption basket. The other 60% is services, where we assume no change at all. So a bit over 1% cut as a result of uh, a hard Brexit in the sense of levying tariffs on Europe. It didn't look at any of the other stuff about whether we would lose markets and lose income and so on. It just asked very simply, put a tariff on the border, tick, 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 how does that get to Mrs. Jones in Cardiff and uh, Mrs. Smith in Brighton? And the answer is it's not critical, but it's pretty uncomfortable. I mean, they keep slicing one and two percent off my living standards, and in the end it gets to be too much. Uh, thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, Liam, well done. Getting, I was uh, <laughs> wondering what bad jokes about barriers I could make. Describe um, <laughs> getting, but also thank you. You've uh, avoided me having to summarise your your book, which I offered to wave at uh, our audience. Um, there you go. Um, the big the book. Reason book. Um, would you like you? You haven't uh, obviously heard them all right now. The, both, both of our other speakers right now, but I think you're familiar with the Rand model and so on, are arguing that um, really on pretty well or every plausible um, uh, scenario, uh, we're going to be worse off. And uh, Alan's you've just heard now. Do you want to take us through your, your view of it? Sure. Sorry I'm late, everybody. Uh, just got a, a train from Cambridge, which was uh, half an hour after <laughs> the train that I was meant to get. Um, uh, thank you for inviting me here. I guess this is a bit of an away fixture for me. Um, but that's fine. I mean, Jared Lyons and I wrote a book um, which is completely designed to be um, a book that is for everybody. It's not a tribal book. We're not particularly tribal people. Um, 
Though Jared, of course, has, has worked in politics um, for somebody called Boris Johnson. Um, I guess what I'd say is that I think it's unfortunate. I'm not here to, to throw stones. Uh, what I would like to do, away from the political maelstrom, if we can, uh, even if I suffer from a cancelled train, is to try and move the debate, at least for tonight, onto uh, the outcome of our talks rather than the process of our talks. Of course, the daily news cycle is in, almost entirely um, uh, dominated by process, the political process, who's up and who's down, and the actual process of the negotiations. There's very little that's said about the outcome. And that's partly the government's fault. I think the government's doing actually a terrible job of selling uh, its vision of Brexit. I think the Prime Minister is wrong to, she was wrong to reply to Ian Dale the way she replied to Ian Dale. She should be not viewing Brexit as something that I must do because it is my duty. She should be um, telling the British population why actually there are many advantages, uh, while some disadvantages, to us being outside the single market and the customs union. And I hear very, very little of that. But there's a very respectable case to be made uh, for being outside the single market and being outside the customs union. And in the first half of our book, Jared and I do indeed focus on the negotiations. Um, we wrote the book in basically between June and September 2016. And uh, June and, yeah, September 2016, I think most of the footnotes are July and August. Uh, a lot of what we've been saying in the book is, is coming true on the divorce bill and uh, Northern Ireland and so on. Uh, but the other half of the book, in fact, the final two thirds of the book is unashamedly uh, an attempt to try and lay out our model of a post-Brexit Britain, things you can do outside the single market and the customs union that you can't uh, when you're inside them. I guess it's, I think it's a little bit sad that the last sort of official uh, attempt we had at government forecasting, as opposed to Rand and, and other academics, or other groups like Economists for Brexit and so on, but the last sort of official forecast we had was the Treasury before the referendum. And of course, I mean, uh, as, as an economist, um, it's, it's very difficult to get your head around just how wrong they were. I'm sorry, um, we were going to have minus 0.6% growth in Q3 of 2016 and minus 0.6% growth uh, in, sorry, we we're going to have minus 1% annualised though in within one quarter in Q3 of 2016 and then minus 0.6% in Q4. We were going to have an immediate and profound economic shock, weren't we, ladies and gentlemen? That's what the Treasury report said. And I read every word and all the footnotes. Um, and some of the assumptions were ridiculous, frankly. Um, uh, the idea that the UK would cut no free trade agreements with anyone else outside the EU. RAND didn't make that um, grotesque assumption, not least because since the Treasury report, there have indeed been many countries who have shown much interest in cutting free trade deals with the world's fifth or sixth largest economy. And instead of minus 0.1 and minus 0.6 in Q3 and Q4, we got plus 0.6 and plus 0.6, didn't we? We didn't have an immediate and profound economic shock. We didn't have the loss of 500,000 jobs. We've actually had pretty good employment. That's partly been because of an exchange rate devaluation, yes. But if you go back to IMF December 2015, January 2016, in their 
uh, economic outlooks. They say the sterling at that point was 20% overvalued. We're now, sterling trade weight is about 5% off where it was uh, during the first half of 2016. If you take away the run-up just ahead of the referendum, when of course people like uh, me, or certainly journalists and analysts were saying, of course Leave are going to lose, of course Remain are going to win. And so then we spiked from something like $1.38 to $1.50. Uh, but if you look at, the, for the first six months, we're about 4 or 5% off that trade weighted. So there hasn't been an enormous exchange rate devaluation, though of course there has been one. And we have of course had many successive months now of strong manufacturing growth. I think there are many, many problems with the British economy and I bow to nobody and banging on about them rather frankly actually in my economics agenda column in the Telegraph. But I don't think the biggest danger facing the British economy uh, is, is Brexit frankly. Um, I'd say that outside the single market, there are, um, well, I question how useful the single market has been for the UK, actually. You know, the US exports an awful lot to the, to, to the EU, uh, as does China. Um, uh, I know a lot of large companies like the single market, but a lot of small companies don't like the single market. Uh, of course, only uh, about 8% of our companies actually export to the EU, even though all of them have to uh, comply with EU bureaucracy. That's great for the, you know, the, the big accounting firms who get huge amounts of money from SMEs who have to comply. But it's not necessarily good all the time for those uh, SMEs. Uh, I think the customs union as well is just anachronistic, frankly, ladies and gentlemen. You know, when we leave, there'll be 15% only of the UK, the world economy inside the EU. Only 15%. That's quite astonishing. Um, and does it really make sense to sort of build a tariff wall around 15% of the economy with a customs union? A customs union that we disproportionately pay for because we're the only big EU economy that trades a lot more with the rest of the world than we do with the EU. So it's our lower income households who disproportionately pay high tariffs on food, footwear, clothing to protect uncompetitive producers elsewhere in the EU. And of course we have to give 80% of those tariffs to Brussels, so they don't even help us, really. You know, people talk about supply chains, but um, what I've seen, and I've even read about it in some other newspapers, is uh, if you look at manufacturers in the West Midlands now, they're thinking, well, if we do get a trade deal with the US or other non-EU countries, uh, and we can come to the efficacy of the uh, EU's trade deals. I keep hearing there are 64 of them. Uh, no one ever says that only 24 of them are ratified and actually working. Uh, or that added up, they add to less than 10% of the global economy. But if, if we do get trade deals, and I think we will, um, with other large economies, the big economies, the major world economies, that the EU, after 60 years of trying, has failed to strike trade agreements with, so China, the US, Brazil, India, big countries, uh, then our manufacturers, of course, will have to think of rules of origin. They'll have to make 55% of the components of the cars or whatever it is they're making in the EU, in the UK, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. And of course, they'll have to invest in their supply chains, their domestic supply chains. And that's starting to happen. I mean, I've talked to three or four big manufacturers in the Midlands who have said exactly this to me, and yet I don't really feel that's part of the debate. On the single market, yes, 
um, for some kinds of businesses it works, but on the other hand, if it's so great, why have our exports for, to the Eurozone fallen from 60% in 1999 to, well, the pink book tells me 43%, but then a footnote in the pink book tells me the Rotterdam effect may be 3 to 5% of GDP. So it's 39 to 40%. Let's say 40%, let's be generous. But it's still fallen a lot. And given that you know, our biggest single country trading partner is, is, is the US, given that we do have all these incredible connections around the world, if you've lived in lots of emerging markets like I have, uh, then you'll understand that more than, say, most British politicians and, and commentators. Given all those things, it strikes me that it makes a lot more sense to strike our own free trade deals. Now, if you look at uh, the, you know, a, big, a big argument is, of course, you don't have the clout negotiating as the UK as you do as the EU. And there's obviously, I mean, that goes without saying, that's definitely a strong uh, argument. Um, but then again, if you look at the way countries like Switzerland and uh, even very rather, rather small countries like Chile have managed to strike trade deals, um, they've done extremely well. They've struck trade deals with large economies, much larger economies than the EU's managed to do, because they're not negotiating as one of 27. 27 or 28 that often have conflicting agendas. And in the trade deals we have struck, British services don't really get much of a look in. And on services, I'd say, uh, the, the gravity models that, that we tend to use here in Whitehall, or Whitehall tends to, to use, obviously promote uh, and emphasise geography. All I'd say is that, I mean, even the likes of McKinsey, they're hardly the sort of world leaders in global thought, frankly. Even the likes of McKinsey have been putting out reports for many years now that say the total value of, of, of traded digital and service goods is actually much, much greater than the global value of physical traded goods. So if, if, it's, if you're a sort of 1950s post-war view of Europe, uh, then I understand why the custom union makes sense. And Jared and I, a lot of our book is actually the history of the European Union, and the, it's a very loving history in lots of ways. In lots of ways. But we actually think the custom union is an anachronism. We think the single market is of questionable benefit, particularly when you think of the trade that other countries have managed to do with the European Union uh, outside of the single market without the huge annual payments uh, and the other transgressions on sovereignty that I've yet to mention. Oh, well, thank you. thanks very much for that sweep uh, through your argument. I mean, no one's going to disagree with you about the Treasury's short-term predictions, partly because the short-term has already happened, and we know it was wrong, but also because of, if you like, the uh, just intense political climate that was round that. Yeah, the I, question I, of whether Project Fear was, was, was sorting that, I, but it's about the long term. I don't criticise the economists who work in the Treasury, many of whom I was at university with. Um, what I do criticise is how that phrase, an immediate and profound economic shock, was shoehorned into the all right, all right. report at the last look, moment and then repeating as fact across many, many news yeah, cycles by li- the Chancellor of the day. <laughs> but Liam, that, that, that one's uh, kind of um, given that was wrong. Sure. Um, what really we're arguing about here is whether the Treasury's long-term vision, as expressed then, because we don't have uh, uh, an update on that, whether that is um, uh, wrong, um, whether the kind of things that the RAND... Uh, corporation have put out um, are, are wrong. Whether Alan's picture of future living standards is is, is wrong or not. So we okay. We've got we've got um, uh, rival views on this. Um, Charles, 
Um, what do you make of Liam's sketch of the future? Uh, well, we, uh, uh, you weren't here when I laid out our, our report, but you've presumably seen it. We, we, we're, we're agnostic on Brexit itself. That's a decision for the British uh, public to make. And we tried to take an objective look because it's really the largest such thing that has ever been done. And uh, conceptually, what it is, is that you have a pretty seamless single market now between the UK and the EU, common regulatory package, uh, no trade inspection or barriers. And what is going to happen it depends on which scenario plays out, but what is going to happen is that in one way or another, you're going to raise barriers on trade uh, in goods and services with the 27 members of the EU. How much, what timetable, how it plays out will uh, still be to be determined. And that's what we tried to look at. So what would be the impact of raising barriers? Never been done before. We don't know. The world has never seen such a thing. All previous trade negotiations about reducing barriers to foment growth. And so we were kind of looking at that. Uh, the fact that the, they haven't seen impact in the short term, I would think is clear because Britain is still a member of the single market. Uh, uh, the City of London still has full access to the financial services uh, uh, markets of Europe, uh, as well as the rest of the world, and nothing much has changed except the exchange rate thus far. Um, uh, I uh, would just like to comment on the, on the Chile FTA, uh, your point that it's easier for Britain to operate by itself rather than as a member of the EU. And I say this because I spent four years in Brussels doing US trade to the EU. I spent four years here in London as the <laughs> economic minister. And I spent a number of years uh, negotiating NAFTA myself in the, in the Bush 41 administration. And uh, there's a big difference between Chile negotiating with the United States and the United States negotiating with the EU. And the difference is we have a Chile agreement because the Chileans were obliged to take our model. Basically, we had all the negotiating clout in that, uh, in that negotiation, and we imposed our conditions for an FTA. And for the Chileans, it was a good deal, so they took it. And uh, the, the benefits of it are as a function of its goodness. If the UK does a trade negotiation with the US presently, uh, the, it will attract attention in Washington to the fact that the UK has one of the largest surpluses with the US of any uh, developed country trading partner. And that is a big focus for the, the present administration and they will want to undertake to reduce it. Also, some of the issues that torpedo the TTIP uh, will arise very quickly. Uh, GMOs and other regulatory things, chlorine chicken, all of the things that, that stimulated opposition to the TTIP will be presented. Finally, we will, in negotiating with uh, the UK, we will look to establish, uh, shall we say, facts that might uh, influence Brussels uh, for future negotiations. One of those might be this something that uh, the EU's policy of uh, protecting geographical indications. This is very unpopular kind of across the board in the US, yet EU policy. And I can't, it's hard to imagine um, uh, a FTA between the UK and the US that doesn't essentially undermine the GI system. 
Uh, it's also hard to imagine an FTA between the US and the UK that includes financial services. We didn't want to include financial services in the TTIP, and we'd be even less likely to want to do it with a, uh, a UK that it's a world power in financial services. So there are a lot of problems with that scenario. I mean, I, uh, it's perfectly rational. We don't have a free trade agreement with you now, of course. Of course. So and right. we, we do pretty well now. You do, right, very well. You're actually. our biggest single country trading partner, 20% right. of our exports. Very well, so you really don't need freedom from uh, the restrictions of the sure. EU. Sure, uh, but maybe we, can, maybe we can do better. Maybe you could do worse. Maybe. Depending <laughs> on the agreement. But we don't know, so. Right. Well, that's why. The, the, that's why it's a shame all the modeling is just so for us, the, consistently negative. For us, the analytic. We, 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 we strove very hard to be objective, and we've put up this calculator that allows sure. people to alter the assumptions. Uh, but we thought this was really interesting because such a thing has never happened before. It's a big roll of the dice, and it was important, we thought, to bring some objective economic analysis to this. Okay. Uh, 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 Alan, yes. Uh, yeah, let, uh, let me add to, to what Charles said on, on free trade agreements, because I think really the heart of what you're saying, Liam, is don't worry, we can sign these wonderful free trade agreements with other countries in the world and our trade will take off. They I'm are not, not as Panglossian as you suggest. <laughs> okay, well... It's not all sunlit uplands. But, but you're saying... Oh, but you're saying I'm just saying it's a shame in 60 years we haven't cut a trade deal with maybe our biggest ally. Right. And you're saying one other thing as well, aren't you? No. That, that, that uh, geography matters less than yeah. some of these models, these gravity models... There's a right lot more to the world than but, geography. But, but, but let, me, let me add sort of right, two, two, two wrinkles to what Charles said. First, I, have, I, mean, I think I don't agree with you that the single market is not worth very much. The single market is worth a huge amount of, uh, uh, in a sense, not having to worry about all the, the bureaucracy involved in this national trade. For goods. Uh, for goods, but also for services. Well, it's very right. patchy for services. It is patchy, you know. but that's the point. It is patchy, what but did it's... The it European is... Court of Auditors report 2007 deeply disappointing. Of course, of course. Despite endless attempts but, by the Brits, the Scandinavians listen, to, just to change because, that. Just because the single market is not complete, it doesn't mean to say that the single market doesn't add anything. And it certainly does not mean that you can go off and get the same things in the single, as we have in the single market with our closest neighbour with everybody else. But the point I really want to make is free trade agreements which just change taxes, just change tariffs, are basically economic distortions. They are not very good ways of generating welfare. What generates welfare is getting down the real costs of international trade. The time I have to spend worrying about stuff, the risk that they'll stop the stuff at the border, the stuff that they won't recognise my degree so I can't give a lecture uh, in Belgium or what have you. All of that stuff requires <coughs> very deep integration and it cannot be done without tying your hands. You have to agree with the other party that you will indeed converge on some set of regulations, like accepting chlorinated chicken, or accepting, uh, say, that master's degrees have to be two years rather than one. And the minute you do that, you are exactly back in the same worry about sovereignty that we have the concern about the single market. But, but, so the, that, that's the important thing about trade is the real cost of doing trade, and you cannot reduce those significantly, like we have done in Europe, without a constraint, without harmonize, well, harmonize, without having equivalence or some such thing on regulation. 
If you want to go off and do it with other countries, one, you can sign up with the US, but that will make it more difficult to sign up with other countries because regulations can't pick and choose. You have a regulation. It suits one part and not the other. But the second is any serious attempt to get deep integration with another country will constrain us. It's out of the frying pan into the fire, but it's a fire that's a lot less close, a lot less rich, and probably a lot less manageable. But given that services are so important to us, I don't think you can just wave away the fact that this huge edifice that costs us an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of sovereignty, as well as our sovereignty on things that have nothing to do with exports in the minds of most British voters, um, not least like borders uh, and other forms of taxation, I don't think you can just wave away the fact that despite huge efforts by many people in this room, I'm sure, certainly many people in this postcode, to make the single currency uh, single market, excuse me, work for services, we're not really getting anywhere on that. So that's one, one point I'd make. I don't think you can just dismiss that. Uh, we've tried really hard for a long time to make it work with a service superpower, certainly of the region, if not potentially of the world. I don't think that's an exaggeration, at least for the next generation or so. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, yes, of course we want as hassle-free trade as we possibly can, but I'd come up back again to the, to the rest of the world. Many other countries have increased their exports from quite a high base to the EU at a much faster pace than we have since we joined the common market, which then of course became the single market. And the states exports a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of exports to the EU every year without giving up what we give up. So let not the best be the enemy of the good, wow. given that there are many, many other considerations in this conundrum. Well, on, on that note, I mean, for you, how bad is No Deal? Well, I went to see uh, Roberto Azevedo the other day. Um, um, uh, he told me, it was a little feather in my cap, I thought, I'm the only journalist in the world to have interviewed the last five directors generals of the WTO. The, the second one I did was... Uh, when I met you in Seattle in 1999, remember that? On the streets of Seattle, tear, tear there was Broadway yeah. in a gas mask. Yeah. It's not often you get an economist correspondent or a Times correspondent in a I gas mask. I did not have a gas mask. I did not have a gas mask. I caught you out on at least one fact earlier. There was, was tear gas. I was going to lend you mine. Um, no, so I went to see Azaveo, and he said he said a lot of interesting things, and, and I wrote them up in a. a in, in the Telegraph, and I put them out in a podcast, and so on. The whole the whole interview. Uh, no one's properly interviewed him since um, the um, certainly since Article 50. And I said to him, "What do you think of of No Deal?" And yeah, this is for who? For the UK, yeah. for the UK with the EU. And he said, "Well, you already do over half your trade, or around half your trade." He corrected himself under WTO rules. And yes, I can put that on Twitter and people can attack me and say I don't understand. And of course there are MRAs and all other sub-free trade agreement agreements. But the head of the WTO said, well, you already do around half your trade under WTO rules, and that's fine. And he said, quote, I really don't think it's the end of the world for the UK. Yeah. And I said to him, of course, it would be better if we did have a deal a proper free trade agreement with the European Union, though I understand it can't be as good as the single market. But it strikes me that it's 
we should at least prepare for no deal because otherwise you go into the negotiation completely <coughs> naked. And he totally agreed with all that. And you can listen to it on, 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 on the podcast. That's what he said. So the other thing to say is if we don't have no deal as an option, many of the things we need to do if we have a deal, we need under no deal anyway. We need to expand our customs facilities uh, anyway. Uh, there's lots of things mm, that mm. Are, are not exclusive just to the no-deal scenarios, so we should be doing them. Mm. But we need to prepare for the fact, we need to stop saying things like crashing out of the WTO with no deal, given that we do trade with the US uh, and many other countries around the world outside of a free trade agreement under WTO rules. Of course, if you go from... Uh, the single market relationship to WTO rules with the EU, there will be costs, there will mm. be hassle, and there will be lots of work to be done. I totally <coughs> accept that. But I don't think as an end result, it's a disaster based on what we see okay, great. around the rest let, of the let, world. Let me, let me ask it. Um, and uh, the head of the WTO agrees with me. Alan, well, I, who doesn't? It, it, well, well no, I do me? agree. Right. I, just, I just, it seems to be extraordinary that we have an argument when you tell me uh, Brexit is not the worst problem that the British economy is facing. We all agree. Does that mean to say Brexit is nothing to worry about, given that we could do something about it? No, it doesn't. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Given that other countries, and we overcome trade costs in some places, therefore we don't need to worry about trade costs in Europe, does it, it doesn't follow. This is the yeah. point. We, we can't just say, look, because it's not a disaster, don't worry, let's do it, what the hell? We need to you have keep a positive. Me as an absolutist, we, we, and I'm not. We need to it's have so, trade-offs so, and so, shades of grey. Absolutely, but anyway, the point is the fact. It seems to me, you know, the fact that it is not going to be disaster is something that I, I think Charles also will agree. Five no. percent of GDP is a bit of a pain in the backside. It is not existential. Well, well, but there's no reason for that reason just to do it willy-nilly. I no, actually what time frame would it be five percent of GDP? Ten years. Okay, so totally, you just let me, let, let me work this out. Total, total exports to the EU, about 10% of GDP last time I checked. Let's say an average tariff of 2% that, we, that goes on. I mean, Well, really the non-tariff barriers are more important, as Alan said, than, than, the, than the tariff barriers. Because the delays of the lorries, the meeting of paperwork and other inspection re requirements. Has the performance of the British economy since our Brexit vote surprised either of you? Uh, uh, has it caused you to change your modelling assumptions or think about the problem in a different way? Um, the German has the spike in FDI in Q4 of 2016 caused you the to... The German economy has performed, what, twice as well as yeah, the Yeah, well, Germany UK has economy? a massively undervalued exchange rate because it's in a euro zone with loads of other countries uh, that have 40% youth unemployment. Well, uh, we didn't try and, and, and model the short term. Brexit hasn't happened. Brexit will happen. Yeah, everyone knows it's going to happen, and well, we've still had lots of FDI. We haven't had, we, we haven't we, had lots of lobbyists uh, from banks moving to Frankfurt, even though we, they said they would. Goldman Sachs' global European headquarters is still in Farringdon the last time I checked. Nobody really serious is saying that the Oliver Wyman numbers of 75,000 financial service sector jobs from the city after Brexit are true. Most people are talking more like five to 7,000, a tenth. <coughs> but, but the point that Brexit hasn't happened, and, sure, and everyone know, knows it's know going to form, happen. But we yeah. don't know what form it's going to happen in, yeah. uh, which is why you might get uh, some of these, okay. these bodies you know, reacting in a, uh, in a different way of months or a couple okay, of years so, down the line. So, so, the, so the, 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 
the two, the two parties, I mean, away from the Westminster bubble, the two parties, the Scots Nats and the Lib Dems, who campaigned for a second mm. referendum in the 27th, well, the Lib Dems got the worst result in their modern history, uh, and the Scots Nats <coughs> lost 30% of their seats. So they didn't do particularly well. So Therefore, do we really think that the UK is going to stay in the single market? Do the people that are investing heavily in the UK really think that we're going to stay in the single market? I don't think they do. I think they think that we are going to leave the single market in the customs union. Because since Lancaster House, that's been the stated position of the British government. The Labour Party's completely split. It won't even say what it means or what it thinks. That's what our study looks at, is yeah. leaving. So I would say that people are still investing in the UK and people saying, actually, we're not going to leave and do think that we are going to leave the single market and do think we are going to leave the customs union. So, so you're saying that the, the, the bulk of opinion among the people who count is actually there really is nothing to worry about? No, you keep saying that I think there's nothing to worry about. I think on balance, on balance, yeah, on balance, okay, on balance I think it makes more sense for our long-term economic prosperity if we are outside a single market that doesn't allow us to cut our own regulation, no, no, which, I, which stymies our ability to do free I, I trade deals around you, the world. I understand what you think, Liam. And You're I think we should be outside the customs union, which is not only an anachronism, but is also a grotesque affront to people living yeah. in many other countries where it causes a huge amount of All right, poverty. Look, look I'm tempted to let this run, but I think um, we're going to, uh, because it is... Um, um, illuminating in many ways, but let's let's have some questions because we're going to come straight back over lots of these points as well. Over over here on the side, I'll take two at a time. Hello, I, I just thought I should. Would you like to say who you are, please? I should say, so my name's Alex Conway. Uh, I work at the Greater London Authority, and I'm the senior official with responsibility for Brexit-related uh, issues. So we've had a busy uh, day or two uh, with the uh, reports. Uh, which uh, from Cambridge Econometrics, uh, which hopefully you've all seen. Good uh, um, message. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, we were pleased with the all splash, all coverage. splash that it made. Uh, the headline message uh, for those of you who uh, hadn't seen it, I suppose I'd characterise as uh, you know the the harder the Brexit, the worse uh, the economic outcome, and that the, the, the UK outside London overall is affected worse uh, than London, according to. Uh, the models uh, that the economists used. Um, I suppose my, my th- I was wondering if there was a sort of might be a unifying thought actually between all the sort of uh, very interesting things that you uh, said today, which was around the um, what the government might be doing, uh, because I think the mayor has been very clear that uh, you know one of the reasons he's doing this uh, is because the government isn't uh, doing anything. Uh, and so while I don't think, and you know I'm not an economist by background myself, but you know. We've asked some economists to take a look at some scenarios and they've provided some scenarios. Uh, people who know more about these things than me may be able to pick holes in some of those scenarios, but at least it starts a discussion, uh, hopefully, around uh, you know, how we might have a more sort of sensible conversation around Brexit, which may indeed include, well, you know, is there a certain amount of pain that overall people are prepared to take uh, economically? That might be something that, that, that people are comfortable with, but it doesn't feel like we're there... Uh, at the moment. So I suppose the hope is that this might encourage a bit more thinking uh, from government and others uh, to sort of respond so we can have more of a dialogue in the future. Thanks for explaining that. Right, here here on the aisle. Uh, Yes, John Pete, I'm from The Economist. Um, I'd like 
really to hear whether Liam's got any evidence for thinking that services exports will be freed up with countries like China, Brazil, India, and the United States. I mean, as you said, it's been difficult in the single market. We're a member of the single market. There is a services directive in force in the single market. And all the evidence, I think, that the other two have come, come up with is that countries like the US are not going to welcome free services exports from the UK. India has made very clear that if we want to open up their market, we need to um, give Indians more visas. Where's the sort of evidence that, that there could be a services boom with any of these other countries that we haven't had with, 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 the, with the rest of the European Union? Well, of course, I think, uh, and I covered this with uh, the Director General, again, maybe you can listen to the interview, John. Um, uh, I, th I still think that the WTO, in some ways, is still a labours under the shadow of its predecessor organisation that was, of course, largely about... Well, it doesn't come service, good, 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 Indeed, good, goods trade and so on. And I think there is, uh, once you get beyond all the chess-beating and, and rhetoric and, and pre-deal, um, you know, fronting up to each other, I think there is a, 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 an appetite for freer trade in services among the world's leading service sector exporters, which of course we are one and which the States is one. And who knows, there, there may be, you know, we're, it may be that we can work with the US within the WTO, I don't think that's uh, pie in the sky, uh, and other countries to try and make services a much bigger uh, part of what the WTO tries to do and tries to make global, you know, I think one reason why the, the, the multilateral system's broken down really, and of course for all our labouring at Doha uh, Bronwyn, uh, 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 Seattle Bronwyn, the, the, the Doha round, <laughs> yeah, I was there as well the Doha round of course didn't happen the first yeah. real failure of a multilateral trade negotiation since the, the 30s it's quite, and, and uh, the other big agreements we've had since then and most recently the Bali agreement really gets around that problem um, by being a lot less ambitious. It may be that we, I don't think it's, it's jingoistic to say that a big service sector exporter like us can with the, work with the states to try and export more services. And it's impossible to do services when the UK and the EU, because of course no one will touch agriculture because it's gold-plated. And that makes it very, very difficult to do services deals with the kind of countries that could benefit and want British services because we can't give them anything on agriculture because we're tied to the hip to the French and the Belgians. I think that's a major dynamic, uh, the sort of agriculture for services deal in an in a, in a environment where a big country like the UK is coming back to the WTO um, and other countries can rally around, other service providers, to try and make services a, a big part of global trade negotiations rather than just coal and widgets. Uh, just a question, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, are you proposing that freed from the EU, the UK would be able to engage in bilateral or plurilateral free trade agreements all over the world and utilize it, get this better services access? Or are you suggesting that freed from the EU, the UK would work with the US to revitalize the WTO multilateral process where any benefits are available to everyone. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I, I do have doubts about whether the multilateral model 
can survive in its kind of you know post post war form. Uh, and I think many people who are close observers of the WTO. I don't think we can pin our hopes on a big multilateral deal because I think it's very, very difficult. The world is, is a lot less multi unipolar than it was in 1944. Right. <laughs> right. Well, but there the, are many poles. But, the, but, but I do think services should be a major part of global free trade agreements, and at the moment they're, they're often not. That is correct. They and the, 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 the deals that, that some EFTA and EEA countries have done outside the EU, again, taking on my Twitter adversaries, have generally not included services. One of the problems with services uh, arrangements that was raised uh, already is the fact that for developing countries, doing a services deal often involves immigration. They, you know, the idea of, of delivering services by people showing up and doing it mm -hmm. in your country has proven to be quite unpopular. And it would seem to me that in the circumstances here, in which migration is a big issue in the UK yeah. and the EU mm -hmm. in general, it's pretty tough to negotiate a, 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 a big uh, services opening with countries that want to thereby free up temporary workers and other kinds of uh, controversial circumstances for delivering the services that they're competitive in. Well, there's a, there's a chapter in, in my book with Jared on immigration, but just a, a few points. Um, so I'm the son of an immigrant, um, and I grew up in an immigrant culture. Um, very much so, uh, an immigrant community, very, very diverse. Uh, I don't actually think the problem with the, ex the sevenfold expansion that we had in net annual immigration in this country from 1997 to 2016, from 50,000 under Blair 97 to 352,000 net uh, in 2016. I don't actually think the problem was the final number. I think the problem was the ramp up the pace, and I think an even bigger part of the problem than the pace, because the British public are generally very, very tolerant, in my experience, as the son of an immigrant. Um, the problem was that there was, it was almost as if nobody was, not only, we were not only not allowed to talk about it, very little provision was made for it in terms of it, it coincided, I don't know if you've noticed, with the, the slowest pace of annual house building in this country since the general strike of 1926. Uh, and I still think we have to solve um, our, we need to strive for much, much greater efficiencies in our public mm. services and even put a bigger share, <laughs> whisper it, of our GDP into our public services in order, you know, I, I, I think something like 2% of the UK landmass it has construction on it and something like 4% is, is, is urban in any, in any sense whatsoever. It's not as if we can't take more people, we can, and I think we will. Um, but I don't think you can take more people when you do it so quickly and with so little, and the political class plays so little regard to the impact this is having on the vast bulk of the population outside the M25. I mean, that was why everyone in this room, I'm sure, was so shocked by Brexit, um, except maybe those of us who live outside the M25. So I think, it can, it, I think it can be done. Let's take some more questions. Uh, here in the front, and then back, uh, I'll, take, I'll take two together, uh, and then I'll come to another two. Uh, it's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. I have a lot of interviews with uh, Japanese companies, and they don't know where you are going. And so that's a big problem for Japanese companies. So they don't care Brexit, because uh, even 
you do a Brexit, uh, UK economy has uh, some strengths, but they don't know where you are going. And please uh, tell us uh, where is uh, your goal? And so goal post <laughs> is, uh, uh, so <laughs> David Davis says uh, Canada plus, 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 and uh, Barnier said uh, Canada plus. Uh, what is the uh, goal post? And uh, what is the implication of uh, Canada plus and triple plus? This is not the right panel to tell you what the government intends. Finally, to say, you can tell you can say what you. Um, uh, we bring in another one, and we ask these two together over, over here. Uh, thank you, Carol Walker. I just wondered what um, all of you think of the, how viable this idea of Theresa May's of having essentially a, a series of, of different sectoral deals. This idea that you have three baskets with varying degrees of convergence and. Uh, access and, and tariffs and I know at the moment clearly the EU uh, are saying no that's having your cake and eating it but whether you think that when push comes to shove it is viable to think that we could have different sectoral deals which would suit different sectors of the economy and whether that might end up being a way out of the um, some of the wider arguments that we're, we're uh, hearing about. Very, thank you for bringing it up. An, an idea that astonishingly re re resembles um, an IFG <laughs> paper um, some weeks before that, though it's proved more popular in London than, uh, than Brussels. Um, we've got um, two questions there. One, where is the government likely to end up? And uh, one about the three baskets, and they're both related. Who wants to go in? Predicting the government is probably harder I'll, than predicting I'll, the economy. I'll take the second rather than the first. <laughs> uh, I'm a foreigner, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, try to speak. The problem with the sectoral deal from international trade law standpoint is that it would violate Article 24 of the, of the uh, WTO and the GATT before it. Uh, free trade agreements that abolish tariffs are, in theory, supposed to be comprehensive, covering all trade. And that was, in the Uruguay round, that the disciplines with re that respect were actually increased. So that's the number one problem, is it's violative of international law. And we saw when the UK and the EU announced or, or, or notified the WTO that they had some ideas for distributing the tariff rate quotas that also resulted from the, the Uruguay round. And they thought they'd kind of divide them up and, and everyone would go along with it. Many countries, including the United States, objected. So if there were such a sectoral deal, it would cause problems in international legal terms. And the other thing is it's hard, having just come myself from Brussels, it's hard to imagine the, Bel the, 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 the EU itself agreeing to something that was so clearly cherry-picking in nature. But who knows? Yeah, I, I need to disagree with Charles a little bit. Uh, I think the proposal is about regulation, not about tariffs. Oh, well, in that so case, then it doesn't... I, I don't think anyone is particularly running a view that we have selective uh, tariff reductions. Oh, okay. So, essentially, one can meet Article 24 in its, its simple, sort of plain vanilla form that we actually apply by having zero tariffs with the EU. I think the proposal, I know more about uh, Bronwyn's and Mrs. May's, I have to say, but uh, yeah, the proposal really was there's a set of things where we agree we will have convergence of regulation, a set of things where we'll be totally free uh, to go wherever we want, uh, things that don't matter perhaps, I don't know, and a set, a set of things in the middle that somehow we sort of negotiate and cooperate over. The big, the, it's, it's not an unattractive idea. 
Um, but setting these things into baskets um, is always very contentious. I've had big arguments in the past about why cement is not a consumer good in developing countries and therefore why they can't charge 25% tariffs on it. You know, it's got to be a, a nightmare sort of settling the list. But also the point is, goes back in a sense to what I was saying to Liam, one of the huge virtues of the single market is it's stripped away not just tariffs between European countries, but all border regulations altogether. If we get into a situation where even one, at least in principle, where even one good potentially could have serious differences in standards between the UK and the EU, we need to stop, in principle, just about everything crossing the border in case that good happens to be on the lorry. It's not as extreme as that, but the point is this three regulatory packages does not get around the fact that the only way you can entirely abolish uh, border uh, restrictions is for goods to have complete um, equivalence or harmonisation, you know, say we don't worry about differences if there are any. So I think it's practically very difficult, but it also doesn't solve what I think to many people is the real problem. You might be able to do it in services, have different blocks, but then in a sense it's all going to be so ad hoc that you might as well do services sector by sector if we are going to go through a sort of free trade agreement plus, plus, plus. What's the government going to do? I don't know. I mean, yeah, who knows? They certainly don't tell me, but it's very difficult to tell. You have to say it's quite strange that the Cabinet had its first discussion only last month and that that was really uh, just a sort of formality. Um, it's, among the most distressing things, it seems to be about Brexit, is just how little anyone in um, positions of responsibility has thought to think this thing through in a careful way. It's why Liam had to write his book, why I guess I'm involved. And we're not out of that wood yet. They, clear, they still are not really able to confront the differences in concept that they have uh, and, and move to the stage of working out the details of a technical solution. So, like you, we're all waiting with bated breath. Yeah. Briefly, because maybe you want to get some more questions in Bronwyn, uh, I think sort of intersectoral deals are a good, good sort of way to think about the thing in the first place, but they do lead to difficulties, as, as we've heard. Um, uh, Jared and I wrote a paper in December 2016, so before Lancaster House, that advocated intersectoral deals as a starting point and a two-year transition period. Um, so we're not by any means you know, absolutists about this. Um, I think there are many benefits to a sort of transition period. So we only move, have one kind of shift, if, if, if you know what I mean. I, I actually, with regret, think the most likely outcome is no deal. Um, not for ideological reasons, I'm not ideological about it, just for practical reasons. I just don't think the politicians understand how difficult this stuff is. So I think we absolutely have to prepare for no deal because that will probably be the most likely outcome. It won't be a decision we make, it'll just be what, what happens, frankly. Um, it must be very difficult from Japan. Um, I don't think the international press, with all respect to friends and former colleagues in the room, um, gives you all the nuances about what's actually happening. Um, uh, I think also the German election has made things much, much more complicated. I think in the end, I hope in the end, that elected politicians will do a lot of the heavy lifting, the sort of political um, 
head-to-head -head that has to happen in this because there are of course massive vested interests involved we mustn't be naive but the fact that Angela Merkel lost uh, uh, her ability to form a government let me put it like that at this point the fact that the SPD and the CDU between them for the first time since the Second World War didn't command 50% of the German uh, uh, votes cast uh, and the fact that AFD uh, a, a egregious party in my view got 13% of the vote the first hard right party to enter the Bundesrat since the Second World War. These are big changes in Germany um, and it means that Mrs Merkel, who I desperately want to remain as German Chancellor, hasn't been able to focus to any degree on, on, on Brexit. She's got enough problems of her own. Okay. I think if she did, uh, as and when she does, or as and when elected leaders do, there are of course you know, many, many powerful commercial lobbies across mm. the Eurozone and the broader EU mm. that actually want trade with the EU to carry, the UK to carry on as near as it possibly can to the mm. way it is now, because they benefit enormously from it. I think it's like mm. 70 to 80 billion euros, the latest number I saw, the, the surplus. All interesting, but we've still got loads, <laughs> loads of hands up. Um, one here on the aisle. Was there one in the doorway? Someone boldly came. Thank you very much. Tony Hutton, one time Director General of Trade Policy in the DTI. I was also at Seattle, though I spent most of my time in EU coordination rather than on the streets. Um, it seems to me that this, one of the problems we've got is there is an unequal argument here. We can more or less chart what the short and long-term costs are of leaving the EU on certain assumptions. They're not easy themselves. What is much more difficult is the question of what the benefits will be to offset any damage which is done. Now, one thing we can be quite clear about, I can be quite clear about anyway, is that doing trade deals, which is the term unknown to the WTO until this point, um, is not a straightforward not a straightforward thing. People understandably want things back from you. Um, Ambassador Rees and I spent quite a lot of our time actually arguing about what we might do for each other and never coming to any, any very great conclusion about it. Similarly, the Indians have made it quite clear that they are very reluctant to liberalize. They always have been reluctant to liberalize. It's built into their DNA. But not only that, they also want concessions on, on immigration. The Chinese would almost certainly want an, a, an assurance, for example, we would not use trade policy instruments like anti-dumping and countervailing duty against subsidized imports. Now, assuming we can make all those, there is still a timescale problem. And the question which I want to pose is, to what extent have people in building up these models of, as it were, the damage been able to make any assumptions whatsoever about the generative effect of leaving and the ability to make trade deals, and to what extent can they take into account the timetable? Because one thing is pretty clear. If we leave, the damage will be the short term, the benefits will be very long term if the history of trade negotiations has any relevance in this particular area. Thanks for making that point. The IFG has argued that the first thing that the EU should, uh, that the UK should do, is try and replicate the free trade agreements that it would lose, like mm, South Korea yeah, and so yeah. on, because those are immediate losses. And as you point out, the free trade agreements in the future are of unknown benefit and take some time. There's one over here. 
and I'm going to try and squeeze one more in, which is over there. And everyone's going to have to give really brief answers to these complex things. I'm Patience Wheatcroft, and I'm unashamedly continuing to campaign for Remain, along, it seems, along with the will of about 52% of the people. Um, put that to one side, because Liam and I have done battle on this regularly. I'd be very interested to know what Alan and Charles put into their models to take account of what's likely to be a constant flow of labour, immigrant labour, out of this country, and also how you cope with whatever is going to be the Northern Ireland situation with a non-border or goodness knows what. And then, if I could, I'd like to ask Liam, who doesn't really have a model, a different question, which is, if what you say is right about the single market producing really no benefit, why is it that 132,000 companies from this country only export to the single market? Okay, thank you. And I'll squeeze in one, one last one here. And these are going to have to, I'm afraid, be brief last thoughts. Um, hello, Ivana Dimitrova from Grand Thornton. Um, one of the LSE studies you mentioned um, shows that uh, Brexit would have a differential impact on regional economies, um, meaning that different regions have different interests uh, economically. And would a comprehensive trade deal reflect those regional differences? And should regions be free to approach and negotiate with the EU directly? Thank Great you. question. Okay, yeah. let's go. And these are going to have to be really uh, brief and don't feel obliged to answer them all. Liam, do you want to answer that one that was directed to you from Patience? Um, yeah, just briefly, I, I totally agree that we need to try and um, roll over our deals that we have with the EU. As of ever, though, actually, the phrase you used was it's a good head start if you have an existing deal as a member of the EU with a country like South Korea and, and South Africa and Mexico and the other large economies that the EU has managed to do a free trade deal with. Um, actually, Jared and I, um, we're both uh, trained econometricians. We did a lot of modelling for our book. We've also been involved. Some people can model and write columns as well. Um, we also um, have done some work on the uh, economists for tree, free trade models. The trouble we've got, though, is that the trouble the panel has identified and one of the questions identified the modelling is done by sort of entrenched camps, isn't it? You have modelling done in Whitehall that is often has a sort of political overseer that wants a certain result and assumes that the UK won't cut any free trade deals ever with anyone outside the EU. Then you have modelling done by uh, the likes of economists for free trade who think that we'll remove all tariffs uh, and everyone will want to do trade deals with us straight away. And that's the problem, really. Uh, that's why we've got to get over, I think, this notion that we're not going to leave. We've got to stop fighting the referendum with all respect. Um, we've got to think about the damage it would do to our democracy if we do try and refight the referendum. Uh, and the political classes and the broader intelligentsia uh, and even the economists, to the extent that they're part of those two groups, have to get together and try and come up with some <coughs> models that with the assumptions of which don't offend the other side, because... Okay. But Liam, Patience's mm. point, apart from the swipe, mm. uh, whether or not you've got a model, uh, mm. was, was about uh, your assertions about the single market uh, being of no benefit. Let's just pick up that well, one. I, I, didn't, I didn't say for a second it would be... No, it was no, no benefit. Um, 
uh, I just question its relative benefit compared to its costs in terms of sovereignty, the thick end of 10 billion net a year, every year, forever, uh, and that will only go up. Uh, and all the other costs, given that other leading economies mm. export quite happily to the EU and their growth in those exports has been much greater uh, than ours, both in absolute and percentage terms. Yeah, we'll get thanks. thanks for that. Alan. Um, so, uh, two, there are two sets of modelling questions from Tony. I mean, has anyone done anything on the FTAs? Charles could say, but I don't think anyone has seriously uh, looked at the timing. In a sense, just because it's even more uncertain than the rest. No one's going to sign serious trade deals with us before we've settled with Europe. We don't know when we'll have settled with Europe. And so, in a sense, it's just it's all up in the air. I think it is also the case that uh, very few people, patients, have wanted to risk putting migration into their trade models, essentially because it's so unknown and so contentious that it's what people would talk about rather than the trade bits. And in terms of macroeconomics, Northern Ireland is sufficiently small, it doesn't affect the macroeconomics very much. That is not to say it doesn't matter. It matters absolutely critically. It might turn out to be what defines the deal. However, it's not macroeconomically uh, really critical. On the regional effects, um, uh, Ivana, exactly right, the regions very much differ. I mean, we've said this uh, quite a long time ago, and uh, other people are saying it now. Uh, what's the answer? The answer is absolutely not to have different regions going off and negotiating themselves with the EU, because that means you'll have to put borders up between the United Kingdom's regions. The answer is we need some sort of decent sort of conversation in Britain, some consultative mechanism, maybe formally written into the trade bill or what have you, but essentially we've got to start having the conversation that the cabinet cannot yet bring itself to have. That. And that's where we thrash out the question about what are we going to do about the concentration, the uh, sales of services. Uh, we have the, something called services provided by primary industry. It's almost all salmon fishing in Scotland, as far as I can tell. That's a really big interest. If we're going to ignore that, we need to be answerable, in a sense, to the Scots. But absolutely not parallel negotiations. Please, please. Can I I'm promising. Um, Charles, we're already over time. Really sadly, this could obviously go on for a long time. Charles. Very quickly, uh, our estimates, uh, we did the FTA with the U.S. as a proxy for other FTAs because we are the biggest, as Liam pointed out. We assumed in our modeling that the FTA with the U.S., uh, went into effect the, in 2019 when uh, the, the, the UK leaves the EU. Obviously ridiculous assumption, but from the standpoint of making all of the numbers based on the same GDP base, that made sense. And these are abstract things. We had no preconception. Uh, we approached, we tried to cover all of the possible uh, after Brexit scenarios. Uh, we don't have a political axe to grind, particularly, and we did, that was what we thought our contributions were. One other thing is that in the, the calculator, the online calculator that I measured, uh, mentioned, there are two kinds of NTBs you can vary. One of them is the NTBs that enter into force at the moment in which the FTA enters into force. This is the rules origin and so forth. And the other is NTBs over time, and that's a proxy for regulatory divergence. And 
if you think it's going to be large, you can actually take our assumptions and expand them and see what the effects are in GDP. If you think they're not going to happen at all, you can take them to zero and see what the effects are in GDP. We thought that was a contribution. We didn't model, Tony, the effects of uh, labor shortages that might arise from EU citizens leaving. We, on Ireland, what I say is obviously it's not important macro, in macro sense. The situation in, in Ireland, uh, on the island of Ireland, relates directly to what kind of trade arrangements you're going to come up with. The best solution for Ireland is a customs union, but that's the worst solution for Liam's vision mm. of a global Britain. Yeah. Okay, and just find, and the point about, but when do you take in these free trade agreements in the model? Well, we, we assume, it, just, so just that each of the state. scenarios yeah. were on the same base, yeah. we assume that each of the scenarios begins uh, uh, in 2019 mm. and goes for 10 years. But yep. there is a transition scenario, and that scenario is you got five years as full single market member and then five years in an FTA with the EU. Okay. And, and, that, and that's slightly better than the FTA with the EU by itself because single market has lower barriers. But right, we, we do in the text yeah. talk about Canada and all these other, uh, Korea and so forth, and uh, uh, the process that would start. And we just, we couldn't model all of them. We just thought the U.S. was the most important. Thanks. We clearly could go on a, a long time. In fact, I can say, look, to be, to be continued, uh, we called this event because of the astonishing uh, lack of economic discussion in the 18 months since the referendum, and in fact, put it together on the day of uh, David Davis's uh, uh, equally astonishing performance in the Commons about the uh, uh, impact assessments that did or did not exist. Um, we will come back to uh, these questions. Thank you for these terrific questions today. Thank you uh, very much for our panelists. Uh, not Sorry, least, no, 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 no apologies. Uh, thank you for making the, the effort to get here uh, despite the obstacles you face. Thank you very much indeed.